I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Parasite Without a Host edition. It's Wednesday, February 12th, 2020. On today's show, the Oscars went head over heels, wow, for South Korean filmmaker Bong Joon-ho. We discuss Parasite's huge night along with other wins, losses, snubs, flubs, and of course, all that speechifying. And then the glorious return of Patrick Stewart to the part of Jean-Luc Picard on Star Trek Picard and Next Generation. It's a Next Generation reboot. We will be joined by uh, Marissa Martinelli, a Slatester and a Trekkie completist, which I think will help us a little bit. And finally, the great imaginary city known as New York. Joining me today is the deputy managing editor of the LA Times, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. So like a giant collective hangover in LA is like people moving slow, driving slow in a in a fog. Every well, none of us have had a February ever because the Oscars are usually at the end of February. So we've all looked up and are just like, "Whoa, a whole month! What do we do?" <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, Dana Stevens, who's just every month is February for Dana. Hey, Dana. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. But <laughs> I identify gloomy and gray. I love a gray sky. Hey, Steve. Uh, Hey, you are the film critic for Slate.com, I should say. Uh, yes, nobody listening probably doesn't know that. Um, all right. Well, Sunday night, obviously, were the 92nd Academy Awards. It was There was sort of one Dana dominant storyline, which is that the movie Parasite from South Korea, it became the first non-English language movie to win the best picture. It was essentially a landslide in favor of that film. I loved your beautiful uh, roundup of that uh, night of victory for the director, Bong Joon-ho, and what I think absolutely going in was the movie of the year. The Academy kind of got it right this year. Do we feel good about it? Hell yeah. I enjoyed that telecast more than any Oscars in a long, long time. And it really was because of, you know, what I ended up writing about for Slate, which was this kind of story that emerged over the course of, you know, a typically long, heterogeneous, shaggy, sometimes fun, sometimes weird Oscar telecast had this kind of emerging story within it, you know, of this this really industry-changing win by Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Industry-changing because it's the first time a foreign film has won Best Picture. It's the first time, Julie, you can correct me on this as maybe more of an Oscar expert than me this year, but also the first time a Korean director, or I think even an Asian film, had ever won for Best Original Screenplay. That was a complete surprise. Him winning Best Director over Tarantino, Scorsese, you know, these Hollywood legends that were also nominated alongside him was a huge surprise. And uh, it was just, to me, the feel-good story of the night and made the entire thing the kind of whooping on the couch occasion that I don't usually have while watching the Oscars. For sure. And the, I, the other thing is it's the first ever Oscars for South Korea. I mean, South Korea had never, I think, even been nominated for right. international film. And they've so had to, a growing cinema, from, right? They've had just a, yeah. an amazing couple decades in cinema. So to see any of that recognized was was really gratifying. Julia, there's maybe a slightly forced attempt to reverse engineer from the outcome to a meaningful inevitability, perhaps, um, as if the Academy is speaking with a unitary voice and saying something significant to the world. Is that the right way or the wrong way to look at this? It feels enormously significant 
that this picture won. It follows on an awful win last year, Green Book, uh, and an interesting pattern to recent wins aside from Green Book, Shape of Water and Moonlight. Where are we in the history of this award? Well, I think it's become this parlor game to try to read political significance into the awards and on a couple levels. One is just the general, like, what does it mean? What art do we valorize in this particular political moment in American history? And then the other is, of course, close reading what kind of impact the changes in the academy as a voting body will bring. You know, one thing that Justin Chang noted in his essay on Parasites Win was that when you think about what it means that an international film has never won Best Picture before, that means that Bong has done something that Bergman never did, that Truffaut never did, that that kind of the greats, the lions of cinema never did. And, you know, for many years, this was a trade show award, right? Everybody in one town who made a bunch of stuff in one corner of the industry, certainly the most moneyed, certainly the one with the most attention, not necessarily the one where all the best, best movies were getting made, patting each other on the back and voting for their friends and being like, yeah, 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 those Europeans get up to some cool stuff, but we have a special place for them. The best movie of the year was whatever the heck it was. Um, And, you know, in its efforts to increase the diversity of the voting body, the Academy voters have gotten much more global. So the general openness, I think, to the idea that cinema is not a purely American medium um, and the product of the American film industry is not necessarily superior to everything else. It just makes sense that there would have been a groundswell for that. On the other hand, it was so startling. I mean, the the typical precursors went to 1917. And I think there really was a sense that 1917 would win. And, you know, you could detect if you were close reading the websites the pieces that had been pre-written in case 1917 won and that were sort of hastily revised to uh, accord with reality and the facts on the ground. But the combination of seeing the Academy voters move in this exciting direction and do it with a little bit of surprise just meant it was a great night of television watching. Yeah, and and kind of the perfect capstone to what I think was a kind of genuinely wonderful year in movies. I I got into it with a friend over email about the state of Hollywood in 2020. And in in order to win the argument, which was, of course, a total necessity, I set about enumerating all of the good movies and, and not only what movies I thought were good this year, but the number of movies I thought had a genuinely daring element to them. So Joker, you could say, is maybe a vacuous piece of exploitative trash. It also features one of the more unnerving depictions of mental illness, sustained and unnerving depictions of mental illness I've ever seen on screen by Joaquin Phoenix, right? On down the line, there were elements of Judy that I thought were marvelous, unnominated films that are typically overlooked by the Academy because they're funny, like Knives Out, wonderful picture. I mean, it was the year I thought that movies definitively pushed back on both the blockbuster, right? The, 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 the mother that eats its own, right, in, in feature filmmaking and on and back on streaming TV, which steals all the water cooler, you know, thunder, as it were, and really produced wonderful talkable about movies. I mean, we experienced on this show week after week after week, I thought. Um, and it, what that brings to mind is how easy it would have been for the Academy to give the award to another movie this year without it having been a controversial snub to Parasite. You could have given it to this gigantic feel-good epic 
self-consciously cinematic epic of 1917. You could have given it to Scorsese. You could have given it finally to Quentin Tarantino. The people would have complained that was a little onanistic for Hollywood, but still like a, a big sort of self-conscious, important, interesting movie from now a veteran director. But instead they gave it to an, uh, this movie. And I, I don't know whether it makes any sense to impute to the Academy a unitary sense of, of purpose or statement. But I do think what interests me about the choice is that it's a thriller. It's a genre movie. It's it's some of its genre elements are as beautifully and deftly handled as Hitchcock by far. It's also a very seriously intended social commentary film directed at the global one percent. It's Indian, it's foreign, but it's also a global hit. It's done very good business. It's certainly now going to go over two hundred million global uh, with this win, I would think, uh, on an eleven million dollar budget. So just made great, great return on uh, investment. And in a way, because of all of that, it it answers this perennial question or this question we've had for 30 years in the Academy Awards, which is how do you square the circle, right? Sometime in the 80s, the movie business split into, you know, broadly speaking, there are many exceptions, but the movie business basically split into blockbusters and indie movies. Right around 89 with Batman and Sex, Lies, and Videotapes, you started seeing these two lanes start to form. And what the Academy, of course, wants is a movie that has done big business that ratifies Hollywood as, you know, not just a not just a money making machine, but something that injects itself into the common unconscious of the culture. You know that that isn't just a movie that's seen by a boutique audience, and they want some self conscious quality to that film. And it's been harder and harder and harder to find a single film that will do that. And I kind of wonder, Dana, is it possible that global cinema might have an opening there? That there are you know, there is a way in which, beginning with Truffaut, right, up through Bong Joon-ho, European directors have this interesting, very heartfelt, fetishistic worship of uh, Hollywood movies, including genre Hollywood movies. And they can embrace that the way Godard did in Breathless, or Truffaut did in Shoot the Piano Player, or on and on and on and on, you know, Sergio Leone making those Westerns. European and 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 just global uh, movie makers may embrace some elements of big-time old-fashioned Hollywood uh, filmmaking um, while injecting into it the touch and feel of, of uh, non-American sensibility and produce movies that can please the Academy. Yeah, I mean, something that kept occurring to me watching the, the slow and joyous conquest of Parasite over the world of the Academy was that it would be easy in the typical Academy discourse to frame that as the underdog, right? Maybe the the movie from outside that's less expected to win, that's slowly taking over. And there certainly was that that kind of momentum and excitement about an unusual, unexpected movie taking over. But you couldn't really call Parasite an underdog. I mean, as you point out, it's been a massive global box office success, especially for a subtitled movie. I mean, it's just done extremely well for a movie that makes people have to read subtitles all around the world. And it's also gone through the year just collecting the Palm d'Or and, you know, every award, not every award in sight, but a great deal of acclaim from various critics groups and guilds and lesser awards or awards that are precursors to the Academy. It's more like the other dog, you know, it's the dog from a, a whole different culture, a different side of the globe. Um, and Justin Chang of the LA Times, Julia, your paper, I believe, wrote something about how the Oscars needed Bong this year more than Bong needed the Oscars. You know, there yeah. is a sense in which um, the, the the world that was opened up to, you know, maybe blinkered Oscar viewers or Oscar voters was, wait a minute, there's a whole global world of cinema out there that is making money, 
you know, getting reviews, selling tickets, creating conversations that has nothing to do with the Oscars whatsoever. And you had that feeling a little bit from Bong, I think, and his crew during the course of the night that they were delighted to be there and to be getting all those awards, but they didn't necessarily regard it as the culmination of success that they could possibly achieve in their career because he's already a superstar in Asia and has been doing well there for a decade and a half. Can we talk a little bit about the show? I mean, the the victory is so exciting that, of course, we must give it its due. But I thought Willa Paskin put her finger on this really nicely. So much of the hostless show seemed designed to insulate the Academy from how white most of its nominees were and how male most of its nominees were. And it seemed like a show constructed in advance of Parasite losing. <laughs> um, so there was this self-conscious emphasis on diversity in the performances, diversity as the text and subtext of many of the presenter's speeches and remarks, all of which is good. I mean, better to better to be aware of your blind spots and proclaim them, even if it felt slightly calculated, I think, to insulate from criticism. Um, but like just the, the wild jamboree of what the show was made for entertaining watching. Like to me, almost all the musical performances other than Cynthia Erivo were kind of delightfully what the fuck. I loved uh, the opening number in which essentially characters from all of the not nominated films like rose like zombies and danced around and did a herky jerky. I mean, some some of them were from nominated. There was a Joker from there was a, a, a Joker figure from the Joker in there, but we had the jumpsuits from us. We had, I think, characters from Dolomite and from Queen and Slim. Uh, we had the Midsommar team. And eventually, <laughs> Janomine was like cloaked in a, you know, sacrificial flower cone. Uh, I love Florence Pugh at the end of that movie. So that was just sort of hilarious. And and Janomine opened the number saying something about uh, how she's proud of all the female directors who didn't get nominated. This was the text of Steve Martin and Chris Rock's uh, monologue. There's just a lot of attention paid to how diverse the nominees were not this year. Um, and then the events of the night just kind of kept creeping up on the Academy um, and proved out that, in fact, the structural changes they've made to the voting body have probably had an impact, even if it wasn't totally apparent on nomination morning. And then we also just have to talk about the truly, truly incredible <laughs> lead up to the Eminem performance where they did a montage that's just like a classic Oscar montage where they were like, songs, sometimes in movies, they can be powerful. Remember all these movies that had songs in them that you liked? And you watched like Titanic with My Heart Will Go On and I Will Always Love You from The Bodyguard. And there's like a clip of the training montage music from Rocky that I don't remember the name of. And you're like, yep, movies, they did have songs in them. And then... <laughs> Somehow in this, like, I mean, it's really almost all the choices were like that, like just truly iconic, and I don't say the word lightly, movie choices. And then they get to Eminem backstage in 8 Mile, not necessarily a movie that stands toe-to-toe -to -toe with Titanic and Rocky, although a fine film. The, like, kind of violin buildup to when the verse is about to drop, and he's in a room, and he's rubbing his hand on his hair, and he's walking down the corridor, and suddenly you've gotten, like, 30 seconds of swelling violin, and you're like, when is Eminem going to rap? And then it cuts to Deliverance, and you're seeing Burt Reynolds in a vest, and you're like, what the fuck? Why did they... <laughs> <laughs> and then Eminem, for some reason, rises out of the floor to celebrate the 18th anniversary of uh, 8 Mile. And eventually <laughs> the 18th anniversary. Who can forget? <laughs> like, just the, just the true 
randomness of it as a moment was so delightful. And then, of course, it became clear once he thought about it for a sec that Eminem had won the Oscar for Best Song that year, but being younger and brasher had declined to show up and grace the Oscars with his presence. Uh, But this year he agreed to, like, finally give the best song performance he withheld from us. Uh, in early 2003. And it's like, I don't, I haven't quite been waiting 18 years to see Eminem perform Lose Yourself on the Oscar stage, but it seemed as though the Academy thought maybe we all were. <laughs> that was weird. I I, that it. was almost like a bait and switch, right? Because the, the, the <laughs> montage really was one of those classic, which I love. I love the classic corny Oscar montages, and I wish there was one for every category, basically, right? I tweeted something negative about it and then looked at Twitter and saw you had immediately after me tweeted something very positive, about it, which I love about you. <laughs> well, but that was before it got to, this is the bait and switch. That was before it got to the Eminem part. I was kind of grooving along like, yeah, Risky Business, that Bob Seger song, totally associated with it, remembering great movie songs <laughs> of the past. And then... Suddenly, toward the end, it started to spend an extraordinarily long time on 8 Mile. And I was thinking, was 8 Mile really that big of a deal? And why are we revisiting this? Why is this taking up such a large portion of the montage? And then that bleeds into Eminem giving a quite extended live performance of Lose Yourself with people in the audience rapping along. And I sensed something sneaky behind the scenes, like Eminem's due for a comeback and he's going to drop some surprise album and his agent has just negotiated this. I mean, it's just too random that a movie from 18 years ago, not even a round number anniversary, gets that much play. But yeah, that was part of the the, the random fun that made the ceremony, I thought, quite enjoyable this year. Yeah, he does have a new album, but I, I would not underestimate the... Academy's ability to think that everybody knows every jot and tittle of Academy history and would know what a big snub it was when he didn't perform and what a big deal it was for him to finally perform, like which left most of us clueless. I will say that I was really happy that the songs, the nominated songs, were back. I think it was last year or the year before that they decided to save time by not having anyone perform any of the nominated songs. And to me, that's part of the point of the show. If you're not making it to some degree into a live concert at which things can actually happen, then you're just cutting out the spontaneity of the show. And so the fact that it opened, for example, with almost an old school Debbie Allen choreographed style, just cheesy montage tribute to the movies of the year with Julia, as you said, all those costume dancers from the non-nominated movies, just gave it a feeling of of lightness and joy. And also just Janelle Monae is, is the bomb. She's so fun to watch perform in, in any context, even in a sort of silly number like that. Agreed. I my one objection though is that overstuffing a lot of the montages and performance, you know, pieces in itself is fine, but if it leads to the best picture winner, the lights literally going out on them when mid, you know, like seconds virtually into their uh, acceptance speech, they turned out the lights on the Parasite producers and Bong Joon Ho, you know, which provoked the audience to roundly boo and basically in unison scream out, put the lights back on. I mean, I just, I it is confusing to me. I mean, I guess it's not confusing at all. You have that many egos, that many vested interests competing with one another. You are going to overstuff this turkey every time trying to satisfy everybody, but it always ends up massively insulting some winner who just wants to go through a routine 
acceptance speech being unnaturally abbreviated in ways that just always seem to be offensive in one way or another. It always seems to be exactly the wrong person symbolically, and I thought that was terrible. But honestly, Steve, and I wrote about this a little bit in my praise of the various Parasite acceptance speeches, that kind of gave the ending a triumphant feel because it was mm-hmm. real live theater. You know, the audience yeah. would not let the lights go out. And so the last note that True. we saw Parasite go out on was just, the audience loves you so much that they are demanding <laughs> yes. more a curtain call. Uh, Dana, and exactly, and I, it reminds me of one thing I really wanted to say, and I'd be curious to hear if you both agree with me. The room was so with the choice and so with Bong Joon-ho, that movie and The Landslide. I, I really felt that the, 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 that the room itself, Julia, was, was totally behind this win, like warmly, almost effusively enthusiastic about it. By all accounts, the room was with all of it. I mean, we we I was leading a team here in our LA Times offices, but we had an, a number of reporters and photographers on site. And at every time that we were posting in our channel, like, what the hell is Eminem doing there? They were reporting that the whole crowd was on their feet and ecstatic that Eminem had risen through the floor. So yeah, I think it, I think it was a, a popular night. I mean, I will also say that if, if uh, Renee Zellweger's speech was not a case for playing off the winners when they go on too long, I don't, I have never seen a better one. Like, she just got so tangled up in whatever she was trying to say. And it, it reminded me of one one thing that I've noticed about this season, which is that the speeches seemed a little bit less accidental. After the awards, Brad Pitt told one of our reporters that he's written all of his own speeches this year, for which he's gotten a lot of praise, not the fact of his writing them, but their quality, uh, but that he, quote, has a lot of funny friends. And so he really has thought about what it is to perform an acceptance speech and like put the work in to make the speeches good. And that's part of why the speeches have been good. And I found myself nodding along and thinking like, yeah, entertain us through this season. Like that that was that was effective. In some ways, his speech this time was kind of the least uh, exciting and full of funny jokes. Uh, and the Renee speech seemed like a case for getting a punch-up man for your speeches. On the other hand, I was sort of startled by that response in and of myself because what I think I've always loved about Oscar speeches is when someone gets up and seems truly surprised and then manages to say something charming and eloquent in any case. And of course, for, for the actors, they're actors. So part of what has worked about Brad Pitt's speeches is his feeling of being surprised and off the cuff and eloquent and the fact that they're all planned is sort of endearing. Um, on the other hand, Joaquin's speech, I know that a lot of people have found his speeches arresting and moving. And the part where he spoke about his brother River and choked up was in fact moving. But his whole thing about angry cows just made me want to go order a steak. I mean, I, I did not find him to be an effective political communicator. Yeah, I mean, there's always that balance with what makes a good Oscar speech. It has to be spontaneous, but you don't want just complete disorganized rambling like Renee Zellweger's, which honestly kind of annoyed me that she had not done more preparation than that. I mean, she knew she was going to win that award. She was 100% the favorite to win for Judy. And the idea that she wouldn't have pulled together a few remarks just made her seem a little spacey and disorganized. At least Joaquin, for all his wackiness, his speeches are planned. They have a point. They may ramble, but I don't know. I mean, I, Joaquin's weirdness to me is part of the charm. So I love when things go south and suddenly we're talking about cows being separated from their calves in bundled in with all the rest of social injustice throughout history. But yeah, I appreciate. Well, think of their Olivia cries Coleman's of speech. anguish are unmistakable. Oh, God, the poor calves. 
oh, Joaquin feels so much. He just feels so much. But if you think of Olivia Coleman's speech from last year, which we all adored, right? I mean, that was a great balance of her seeming legitimately surprised, of her, her sort of spurting out some rather silly, spontaneous things, but also it being an elegant piece of rhetoric that communicated, you know, her gratitude and excitement. It's obviously as a hard moment to manage when you're you're up there, but especially when you're somebody like Renee, who has just been marching throughout award season mm-hmm. toward the right. inevitability of that win. Write a 45-second speech and memorize yes. it. You're an actor. This has been a hobby of horse of mine for forever. Like, just don't... The towering false humility of pretending that you never thought you could possibly win. Just assign yourself a 13% chance, right? Like, you know, of winning. And on that 13%, spend 15 minutes writing a 30-second speech. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. I I read her, hers as... I, I thought she had a speech written... And memorized and forgotten. That's how I read it because she kept, she seemed like she kept losing a thread that didn't make that much sense in and of itself and then picking it back up again. Uh, that didn't read, like I, her Globe speech seemed like, oh God, I didn't do this. And then this speech seemed <laughs> to me like a prepared speech that she, that she biffed. But uh, mm. I mean, no, I, who will know? But that's she, she pulled like. a Judy. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, Give the people what they want. This past year of conversations celebrating Judy Garland um, across genders and, um, I mean, so I'm sorry, across generations and across um, cultures has, um, has been a really cool reminder that it's, uh, that our heroes unite us, you know, uh, the best among us who inspire us to find the best in ourselves. Um, you know, when... They unite us. When, when we look to our heroes, we agree, you know, um, and that matters. Uh, Neil Armstrong, Sally Ride, uh, Dolores Fuerta, um, Venus and Serena and Selena, uh, Bob Dylan, Scorsese, uh, Fred Rogers, Harriet Tubman. We agree on our teachers and we agree on our courageous uh, men and women in uniform who serve. We agree on our first responders and firefighters. Um, when we celebrate our heroes, we, um, you know, we're reminded of who we are uh, as one people, united. Julia, as a closer Oscar watcher than you've been in the past, I wonder how you feel about the shortened season. Another thing that I felt very relieved about when this Oscars was over was, hey, we're just starting the month of February and award season is over. And I think that not having that extra month that drags into, you know, campaigning and then stories emerge about petty things that happen during the campaigning. And I just didn't feel as sick of and burned out by the Oscars as I usually do by the time they come. So I really hope that they keep this shortened season and give the awards in early February from now on. They have already announced that they are not doing so and will not do so. So (laughs) too bad. (laughs) As part of the general worsening of everything. We were all wailing about it. I mean, it was truly... You know, we had our team at Sundance the same night as the Grammys. It, it, the The film team all just wants to go, like, lie down in a corner and die, I think. It was very grueling. You know, the woman who runs our envelope uh, award coverage put out, I think, more issues than ever in a shorter window and was essentially, like, closing two whole magazines a week for three months, like, for we poor, poor people on the fringes of the awards. It was very, very grueling. I think um, it did create for some surprises and that it flummoxed some of the predictors just because 
1917 kind of snuck up on the globes because of when it was released and then it seemed to get this wind. And, you know, I think if there had been a few more weeks um, and the early predictor awards had been more stretched out, the parasite ascendancy might have been capturable in those awards first. I mean, essentially everyone, including us, predicted 1917, but Glenn Whip, our awards predictor, had kind of an inkling in his predictions that Parasite might be poised to take it just from the level of excitement about Parasite in the room where all of the other awards had been given to, you know, the PGA and those other ones had been given to to 1917. So if there had been a little bit more time to do some of that reporting and digging, the the big wins might have come as less of a surprise. Um, and there might have been less of a sense of, you know what, I don't want it. I'm not sure I want to get this more traditional movie ran down my throat. Maybe I'll, if 1917 is going to win anyway, maybe I'll to make a vote for Parasite that added up to something. So I, I, it'll be impossible to really untangle what role the shortened season had in this, in both this outcome and the feeling of this outcome. But no, essentially everybody in the in the industry was like, don't do this to us. And the Academy was like, okay, never mind. Sorry. Nope, we won't. <laughs> Maybe now that we've all been through it, people will come to them and say, you know, that wasn't so bad, actually. Um, and then next year they'll change it again. But So it's in, just critics that love it then. Story. No, I think other people do too. I mean, like I said, we're all kind of marveling at the expanse of February before us. But, you know, the Academy has a storied tradition now of announcing big changes and then unannouncing them. So we'll see if they if they go back. All right. That was the 92nd Oscars. Obviously, it was a huge night for a great movie. And uh, it was a pretty good night all around for the Academy Awards. So we'll give them another year. All right. Moving on. Before we go any further, we typically talk uh, business right about now. Dana, what do you have? Business this week is just to let our Slate Plus listeners know, or those who are interested in becoming Slate Plus listeners, that for Slate Plus today, we are continuing our Oscar conversation down the road of fashion. In our regular segment on the Oscars, we never got into the red carpet fashions, who was wearing what, what it meant, who looked great, who looked weird, what it means to look great and weird in 2020 at the Oscars. And uh, that's always fun to talk about, I feel like, especially with Julia, who has such a great eye for fashion herself. So if you're interested in hearing that segment or signing up for Slate Plus so that you can hear such segments, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus anytime and sign up to support our show and all the other great podcasts at Slate. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, Steve, back to the show. Star Trek Picard picks up the story 20 years after the feature film Star Trek Nemesis left off. That means it takes place after the death of beloved Data and the destruction of Romulus. Picard is now an old man tending his vineyard, 
being traduced by the media for his role in a botched rescue mission when he meets a mysterious young woman. She thought she was an ordinary human from Seattle, as she says, I think quite funnily, but she may not be. She may be a synthetic life form, uh, not only a synthetic life form, but some kind of techno offspring of data. This is the seventh or eighth. I can't quite determine it from Googling live action Star Trek TV show. It has a 10 episode run on CBS All Access. And of course, it returns the marvelous soon to be octogenarian Patrick Stewart into the title role. Let's listen to a clip. There's no legacy as rich as honesty. <laughs> Who said that, number one? What do you want here? I saw your interview. Do you know me? What? Do you know me? No. Look at me. You're not sure. You're not sure. How do I know that? Who are you? I was with my boyfriend. We were in my apartment. They put a bag over my head. I couldn't see anything. Who are they? I don't know, but my boyfriend. They murdered him. To help walk us through the deep mythologies and very well built out worlds, we're joined by Marissa Martinelli of Slate.com. Marissa, welcome to the show. Peace and long life, Steve. The lesser known Vulcan greeting. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, see, this is just it. We need a geek completist to help us uh, with this uh, reboot. So clearly you were a fan of uh, Next Generation, right? I am. I'm a fan of all the live action Star Trek iterations, although I will caveat that by saying that for anyone to claim to be a Star Trek completist is a pretty daunting role to have to fill. There are some true diehards out there. Yeah, and depending on what you consider canon, right? I mean, there's just sprawling, you know, novelizations, video games, every oh, possible dear. iteration of Star Trek. Uh, all right, well, um, it, what is it, ad ignorant? Tom, is that the phrase you can ar- argue to-, to our ignorance, which I think is vast as the as vast as the Star Trek universe itself? But ratcheting it down a little bit, what do you make of this reboot? Do you like it? I do like it, with the caveat that it is moving so slowly. I feel that even three episodes in, it has only just begun, which is perhaps not a good sign for the show as a whole. But I do appreciate that it is trying something very different, as much as it is even but with the name and the main character treading on the nostalgia of the old Star Trek, really Picard is the only figure from the past who we're following. And in that respect, it's almost an entirely new show anchored by this one beloved character. So in that respect, um, I, I wonder how it's holding up for people who aren't major Trekkies because I love watching him navigate this new world. I'm not sure if that's the case for everyone. Can I can I speak to that question as someone who watched a bunch of Next Generation and for whom Star Trek The Next Generation with Picard and Counselor Troy and the automatic water machine is essentially my primary experience of Star Trek? I found, I'm relieved to hear you describe this as slow moving because I found the show glacial and bewildering and I was so happy to see Picard and to listen to 
Patrick Stewart's sonorous gravel, which I would, you know, he could do anything and I would watch it. But everything else, in addition to seeming like a lot of exposition and setup and plot, I did not know, for example, that Data had died in some recent installment of something or other. I just couldn't recognize the show tonally. Like, what I part of what I loved about Next Generation was the kind of corny disposability of it, the TV-ness of it, the kind of procedural plots. Like, uh-oh, there's a problem on a new planet. Let's go to the planet. Ah, action, debate, internal strife with the cast, swooshing doors. Hey, we fixed the planet. On to the next planet. Like, that tone... And I'm probably describing it terribly, and and uh, Mercy, you can tell me what I've gotten wrong. But like, I wanted some daring do, some swooshing doors, some tight suits, uh, and like a bright Technicolor palette. And instead, I got like the VFX murk of the kind of lesser reaches of the Marvel universe, and a lot of like ponderous, quiver voiced, like what about the future of. Type stuff. And I was like, ah, oh, bummer. This just seems like all the other stuff. But I'm just a complete ignoramus about what's happened in the film. So maybe, I mean, I guess I've seen the Chris Pine ones, which have a little bit more of that. Um, they have some of the new VFX, whatnot, but also some of the old wit and sparkle. But this one seemed murky and ponderous. What have I missed? The Chris Pine movies are tricky because they are set in an alternate universe, although obviously they are seizing on the visual aesthetics of like the 1960s series. So that as a data point, you might want to sort of push out of your mind. Uh, you're right. I, there's Everything you said is correct. The chunky knitwear, the earthiness of this show is very not Star Trek, which I say with an asterisk because there have been many different Star Treks over the years. But for people who are, are most experienced with the 90s, you know, Deep Space Nine, Next Generation, Voyager, there's a certain aesthetic. And this was a big issue when Star Trek Discovery first premiered because it totally changed the look of what we would expect from a Star Trek show. Although it was a little bit more along the lines of Enterprise, which is the prequel show from the early 2000s that everyone forgets or wants to forget. And so I think there's room for both. I like the earthy quality of the show as a start because, as I said, you know, it's really just three episodes in getting off the ground finally. I mean, literally, they have not flown into space. Picard has been sort of chilling on his vineyard, retired. The call to adventure has just reached him. He's taking a very long time to answer it. Uh, so aesthetically, <laughs> but the, but the showrunner has spoken to this, and the thought process is, though it is a little bit of a, a retcon in that respect, fashion looks to the past, and so it's maybe sort of this this era is hearkening back to something that's more familiar to us, but it's a cyclical fashion that is now coming back into prominence. I don't know if I totally buy that explanation. I did laugh at all the beards and sweaters. In terms of, like, Brooklynites being transplanted to this version of the future. Well, I mean, a funny version of the future that we see here, this has mainly taken place on Earth, what we've seen so far. There's a few cuts out to outer space where the Romulans are, as usual, up to no good. But most of the time we are in San Francisco, as it will be in 2300-something, which actually I kind of appreciated the weirdness of that vision. You see the Golden Gate Bridge going to what's now Marin County, but it's surrounded by these, you know, super futuristic buildings 
And one of the things that San Francisco seems to be serving for, the Bay Area seems to be serving for in this future of 2300 something, is that it's the archives, right? It's some sort of like digital database of everything that's ever happened in the history of Starfleet. And that seemed like a perfectly logical extrapolation of the information economy in in that area now. there, So there were some moments where this uh, utopianism that Star Trek has traditionally been associated with, right, that it's not a dystopic but a utopic future, had some interesting kind of twists. I mean, Earth in the future seems like this place that's kind of got it together, that sort of has a global culture. Starfleet still seems to be, you know, in command, although there's some question about whether they've done the best things with their authority. Um, But if you're somebody who knows the series mainly from the original series, which is what I completely connected to it as a child and and still absolutely love, but hasn't so much followed the later iterations. Um, That vision of what the planet might look like during the years that um, all of this stuff that we've been watching has been happening out in outer space was was kind of well-built. You know, I liked seeing that world. I do wish, though, that this show had the discrete plot structure of both the next generation and the original series of Star Trek. In other words, that there were adventures that took place within an hour (laughs) and that they were more or less resolved at the end of the hour because the deep mythology that's being planted already in the first three episodes of this Picard just seems like it's going to be very slowly unfolding and somewhat tiresome to follow. And when things happened that had to do with that young woman that we heard in the clip who comes to Picard with this question of, you know, why she's having these strange psychic experiences and being drawn, for example, to go have Picard save her, even though she doesn't know him. Those things just seem to point toward this long, murky X-Files mm. level exposition that I was not looking forward to. And I kind of want some whooshing doors in space pretty soon. Well, Dana, you know, you say that it's a kind of a pleasant version of the future and yet they did the most dystopic excrescent thing of all they built on the marin headlands Mm. (laughs) (laughs) that's not quite what i thought was going to follow that statement yes well anyway this is a very bleak version of the future especially for star trek because this is i think the farthest out that any show has ever really truly gone into the timeline and when Discovery aired, what was frustrating about it is that it was another prequel, and it seemed like the creators were afraid to venture further into the future. They could not picture what that would look like as, you know, the real life has caught up to the original Star Trek, and we've missed some milestones. The eugenics wars mm-hmm. did not happen, which is part of the—that was supposed to happen in the 90s. So they've been adjusting the timeline. And so to set a show this far in the future, and it's so bleak— I mean, artificial life forms have been banned because of an uprising on Mars in which they killed people. The planet Romulus Starfleet effectively just let it be destroyed, uh, which is, of course, why Picard became disillusioned to begin with. And I think the best relationships on the show so far have been between him and his Romulan kind of caretakers, servants, friends. It's not really nailed down exactly what the relationship is, but the warmth they have toward him as a result is really interesting. But yeah, this is a dark future and yeah. not just for the aesthetic choices. Marissa, having seen more of it than I have, um, Michael Shaban is one of the executive producers of this. Can Is there discernible Shabanery in this? I was not unable to detect any in what I was able to watch, um, which is not as much as I would have liked because there was a CBS All Access outage last night when I had cleared time to watch more of this. But like, I love Michael Shaven. He seems like a great person to assign to this project. Uh, I do not associate him with plotless Merck. Can you see his fingerprints on this? 
that's a hard question to answer because Star Trek is very fixated on issues of the canon and the fans are notoriously persnickety. And I think this show has maybe more in common with Star Trek Discovery, which is a show he did not work on. Uh, he has been a very he's been very vocal in communicating with the fans. So one thing that the CBS All Access Star Trek shows do is curse a lot. Um, <laughs> it's weird to hear a character in Star Trek say fuck. Yes, it's it's such a clean <laughs> universe that we associate with it, right? Star Trek is is the goody goody sci fi franchise, and he had a really great explanation for that, which is that it was always the FCC and not the Federation that mm. led to characters not swearing. And that this version of the future, it's not about perfection. It's about aspiring toward perfection. I think he has a, a good understanding of the franchise as a whole. And so that may have reduced any kind of auteuristic vision. Uh, it's just, it's there's too many hands involved, I think, for you to really see his fingerprints in particular. Lots right. of hands, including I saw Eugene Roddenberry, the son of Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry, is one of the executive producers on the show. So presumably he was brought on there in some way to provide continuity, right? I mean, famously, Roddenberry is this, I don't know, guru-like figure for the Star Trek fandom. And so it seems maybe important that his son was brought on mm -hmm. in some way. He's always very involved. Another important voice is Kirsten Beyer, who also worked on Discovery, and I, I interviewed the the crew behind Discovery when it was first airing, and they are so careful about the canon, and she is sort of the, the keeper of the canon. It's not quite like Lucasfilm, where they have a dedicated story group dedicated specifically to keeping canon, but everyone involved is such a diehard fan that it's almost unofficially every single person involved just knows the past Star Treks in and out. So I, I have a question, which is the okay. So it's important to keep franchises like this mythologically correct because of the nerd factor in the audience, and so you've got a keeper of the canon or whatever you know, kind of Vatican-like uh, job title you give such a person. But isn't there something else that might be being violated here, which is that for me, and I like Dana, I'm a child of the '60s who grew up watching the original Star Trek in repeats, uh, you know, in syndication. And so for me, the defining thing about the franchise has always been its heart and its quality have always been sort of inversely proportioned, that it's cheesy and <laughs> under, right? Like it's the fact that it's cheesy and underproduced is where its immense and unkillable charms kind of come from. It's like, it's the silliness of the kind of paunchy pajama wearing Captain Kirk and the kind of little bit of a kitsch factor to it, but not too much. And, <laughs> and like it, this, the salt shakers used as props that they went and got at <laughs> a store on Melrose or something. I mean, the stories of the kind of cheap production of that yes. original show are so endearing. Right. And then when you kind of reverse it like this and you bring in all these peak TV bloodlines and like, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning novelists to show help show run it. All of a sudden, you kind of get get it reversed, and now, to me, the dominant aesthetic of this one is is a kind of fan service nostalgia that's fallen into a kind of it's almost like a it's almost like a its own aesthetic, right? Where you simply need to show a seventy nine year old Patrick Stewart in you know, in that character and you can just sort of hold the camera on him like Warhol training the camera on the Empire State Building and the fans are going to swoon. It's like if you're not, if that doesn't, if that doesn't have that effect on you, this kind of ponderous, you know, 
non expositional style is is like where is this going like get the guy in the tights and on the freaking spaceship Steve you might prefer Fox's The Orville which is has I, been called a parody I, of Star I, Trek but really it's an homage to 90s Trek I, I sense an insult there but I <laughs> but also you're probably right <laughs> It was a sincere recommendation the Seth MacFarlane Star Trek you know uh cosplay that he has put together for himself which actually has a lot of Star Trek's executive producers and talent involved, and a lot of the cast have made appearances on the show. So that's a data point to consider. I think your complaints about Picard are legitimate. I think you could say the same thing, and probably people did say the same thing in the 90s about The Next Generation, right? It's not the original series. It looks different. Who's this British guy? Uh, I I think a, a lot of that, it's hard to define Star Trek by its aesthetics for that reason. And I, this was a quibble with Discovery that I took issue with because, yes, it was leaning a little bit toward Star Wars-y, you know, blue hologram aesthetics. Uh, and the suits were all uniform. You got rid of the iconic red shirts. And then in season two, they really brought in that stuff. So it's hard to say, wait and see, because I don't know if people will be able to stick with this very slow-moving show long enough to wait and see. But I think there are chances that once they get off the ground for them to bring in some of that classic Trek stuff. I know that some of my Trekkiest friends, I mean, people, I had a boyfriend in college who was just really one of the first people I ever knew who was into a fandom and just had an unashamed allegiance to that fandom. And he just loved Star Trek, especially the original series, but everything Star Trek. And uh, I still follow him on Twitter. He's still a Trekkie and he loves Picard. He's very, very fond of it and thinks that it is in keeping with what he loved about the franchise in the first place. And I don't know if that has to do with the presence of Patrick Stewart or with, you know, that that struggle between utopian and dystopianism that's being played out in the show, but it worked for him. If you can get past the desire for more episodic TV, it really is classic Trek. I mean, there are moral quandaries at the heart of it that, for me, are the best of Star Trek's episodes, are about, you know, philosophy and and moral boundaries. It has a lot of Star Trek classic villains, the Romulans, while also bringing them into the fold and really exploring them rather than just vilifying them, which is what Star Trek does with all its best villains. The Borg, which we haven't even gotten to play a major role in the show. Uh, In fact, Jonathan Del Arco, who had a very small part, but memorable part in The Next Generation, has been brought in as an actual character, which is so fun to see. You know, Starfleet is full of evil admirals, as it always has been and always will be. That's sort of the, it's a red flag whenever an admiral is on screen. So I think in that respect, it does press all those buttons. It's just a matter of getting used to a new look and a new format. Well, and to the degree that the glacial pace is counting on our love and admiration for Patrick Stewart to carry us through. I mean, in a way, he seems like Atlas kind of holding up the show and and luring you through the ticking minutes as you wait for some ship somewhere to go somewhere. Like, that's a pretty good bet. If you had to pick an actor to play that role, he, he's pretty good. I have to say that I laughed when he named his dog, as we heard in the clip we played, number one, given that that was his second in command on the Next Generation ship, right? The, the Riker character played by Jonathan Frakes, who I understand has directed a couple of episodes of this this new show, Picard. But I just, I would not be happy if my most beloved boss of my past, you know, with whom I had gone through incredible adventures, eventually named their dog after me. It seems a little, a bit of a wan tribute. <laughs> my favorite joke Dana of the has- whole show is that, when he's putting together a crew for his mission, 
people are like, take Jordy, you know, take Worf. They would drop everything. And he's like, no, I couldn't ask that of them. And I'm like, ask them. We all want to see them. <laughs> so, but they're not going to be on the show, right? That was basically just gesturing at TNG characters who are not going to be revisited. Some again. of them will be. I mean, Jonathan Del Arco is back. Uh, Jonathan Frakes, who played Riker, is supposed to at least appear for an episode. He's been a pretty prolific director within. He, he directed a few episodes of Discovery. He directed a few episodes of The Orville, for that matter. Jerry Ryan as Seven of Nine from Voyager, sort of the standout character will be brought into the fold, which makes sense since this is a show largely about the Borg. And she was sort of our first main, you know, freed Borg character, the Borg being the cyborg race, you will be assimilated, resistance is futile. She rediscovered her humanity. So it makes sense given that the show is explicitly freeing Borg and exploring the Borg further that she will at some point show up with or without stilettos. It remains to be seen. Mm. All right. Well, uh, it's uh, Star Trek Picard. And uh, thank you, Marissa, for coming on to uh, walk us through it. That was extremely helpful. Thanks for having me. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. Okay, for our third and final segment, we're going to talk about an article in the Times Magazine by Willie Staley, who's a story editor at the New York Times and occasionally contributes uh, pieces to it. It's called The Television Fantasy of New York. It's a meditation on New York City as imagined by television, principally. And it takes us through two steps his argument does. First, New York City is commonly depicted as a creative class utopia uh, that tends to forget what was there before such people inhabited the city. And that also can't really jibe with current economic facts on the ground, the, the economic reality of what it really costs to live in New York relative to your income as a member of the creative class. So people live significantly better. I and mean, this is the friends syndrome uh, than they actually could could in real life. So it's a fantasy city to begin with, and it's forgetful of the kinds of people that have lived there previously and still live there today who are not members of the creative class. He gets into the narcissism of this, in, to, to my mind, in an interesting way, which is that even as, as smart, intelligently produced, self-conscious shows like Russian Doll try to acknowledge this narcissism, they uh, turn every person who's not a creative class person into a secret creative class aspirant or into a kind of zoo animal, a sort of specimen of what New York can be. And the thing that he focuses on, um, Julia, I think quite uh, cannily is the bodega, right? That 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 once people become conscious of a New York that has been lost and is in the process of being lost, there's this fixation on the bodega as this island of an old New York, like this, you know, this dirty, ill-lit place, right, to turn Hemingway's phrase on its head, uh, a kind of memory, the one last memory frag fragment of the lost city, um, the one that preceded the $15 craft cocktail in the Zagat's Guide. Uh, and he talks about how high maintenance and and Russian doll both have very significant, like pregnantly significant scenes in bodegas. I thought this was an enviable piece of writing. I thought it was very conscious about how the city is depicted. It was both loving of those depictions and satiric of them. What'd you make of it? I thought this was a really interesting essay that put its finger on something I hadn't 
quite and something that we talked a little bit about in our discussion of uh, Amazon's modern love show, which is just how peak television is depicting New York right now. And the narrower argument is that I think some of these romantic and nostalgic representations of the glory and multifacetedness and abundance of human types in New York are trying to assuage potential viewer guilt about the gentrification of New York and their role in it by, in some ways, incorporating non-creative class types and characters, but then flattening out the, the actual potential differences that might be met in those characters and making them all kind of aspiring screenwriters or secret doctors or something else that might be recognizable to an affluent Netflix viewer on their couch. Uh, I thought it was a persuasive string of observations about modern depictions of New York, although I'm not sure it fully captured for me what's interesting about TV's obsession with New York right now. Dana, what did you make of it? I mean, I didn't really understand the argument this guy was making. I don't love this piece at all. And maybe it's just because I'm a big fan of High Maintenance and Russian Doll. And I know that his point is not to trash those two shows. In fact, as you say, Steve, he's quite affectionate toward many things about them. But I felt like this was one of those polemical cases of somebody starting out with an idea, an idea about gentrification and representation of New York on screen, and then just shoehorning every example that came along into that idea, whether it really fit into it or not. That was particularly evident at a certain moment when he compared these new style shows that he's talking about, you know, their way of, of representing or maybe blunting the representation of, you know, the, the inequality that gentrification represents by comparing them to girls and sex in the city, both of which got around that question by just not acknowledging the existence of gentrification, diversity, other New Yorks within New York. And maybe I misunderstood his argument, but it sort of seemed like he was saying, oh, well, at least for all of their blinkeredness, girls and sex in the city did X thing right. And I just wasn't quite sure what that X thing was supposed to be. I mean, in other words, I guess I don't know whether he's trying to decry the romanticization of New York or just to say that he would like it to be done in the way that he's used to seeing it or something. And as a as a big fan of high maintenance, I could think of several recent episodes of the show that do something very different from what he's talking about, which is, I think, I guess if you had to sum up what he doesn't like about this kind of representation, it's that there's these sort of whimsical encounters between these superficially different New Yorkers, but that actually turn out to be exactly the same. And I'm just thinking of... I believe it was it was called Mushrooms, possibly, the segment, but there was a really dark episode of High Maintenance from last season that was about a veterinarian, an Asian guy who works as a veterinarian who's extremely depressed, but not treating his depression in any way. And then he decides to start microdosing on mushrooms, which I think he gets from the guy, right, our, um, our weed dealer who ties together all the episodes of High Maintenance. And then kind of abuses and has this horrible experience at work where he's high on mushrooms while trying to save the life of a kitten. It's absolutely hard to watch and awful. I won't give away what happens, but that isn't a story of whimsical encounters between people of different social classes. It really is just like a horrible day in the life of this mm. one guy who's not an artistic aspirant at all. I don't know. I just I guess I would attribute more diverse writing and characterization to those shows, right. to Russian Doll and High Maintenance than this guy does. But above and beyond that, 
This seemed like something that happens a lot in New York Times opinion pieces where somebody takes anecdotal experiences from their own life and tries to spin them into this much bigger argument. And I'm not just not quite sure about, for example, the long passage about that guy's apartment in Bushwick and how much it cost at a certain year and how gentrification spread throughout his neighborhood. That could be interesting for a personal real estate confession, but I'm not sure how it ties into this big argument about how we are representing New York on the small screen. Dana, that's so funny. I just thought of this as an enviable piece of writing through and through, really sincerely. I thought it was filled with the wonderful sentences like, bodegas must bear the burden of a whole generation's yearning for the very stuff their presence in New York has eliminated. I thought it was, just to use a horribly pretentious term, I thought it was like dialectical. It was really thinking about how gains and losses balance against one another, really imply one another in some deep way. And there are two, to my mind, really dominant young creative class dilemmas that he's trying to come to grips with. The first is that never in the history of the United States has a single city attracted so powerfully to itself young people and creative people, and never has that city been more expensive to live in, never has it priced them out so ruthlessly. And so people Young people, creative people are trying to navigate that dilemma. And then a larger creative dilemma, which is that a certain kind of person has the cultural capital and the literacy slash high literacy to create content. You are faced with a pretty hard dilemma, which is either you write about what you know and you don't violate the line between authenticity and inauthenticity, and you end up writing about people who live in your bubble, or you appropriate the experiences of others. Uh, slash project upon them your own experience. And I thought he was just extremely sensitive and had many examples. It wasn't just one example here, one example there of these shows making a good faith effort. I mean, I do think it is in the best sense of the word, a dialectical argument. It's like they're caught in the same trap that I'm caught in, that we're all sort of caught in and trying to find their way out of it. But as you try to get out of the net, it just ensnares you further in some respect. And it, to, my, to my mind, that adds up to a love level love letter to the city. I mean, that that's what I think is what's interesting about it is that is that that is how you live the reality of New York City in the 2020s. Yeah, I mean, I, like Steve, thought this was a, a good essay worth reading. I think, Dana, your point about gentrification, though, hit a nerve with me because I think it's not certain to me that the anxieties of gentrification in place are what are driving these characterizations uh, where there's sort of a curiosity and a desire to bring in more diverse voices and experience, but then sometimes a certain kind of patness or dead end in the tunnel in, in how they're characterized. I think the risk in his argument, though, is that he seems to be suggesting, okay, why is a generation of really interesting creatives essentially suggesting that the way you can know that the quote unquote other is, you know, connect with them in a human fashion is to recognize your own impulses or instincts in them. And that seemed uh, kind of blinkered. Like I agree some, I, I thought he did have a wealth of examples, numerous examples from numerous shows. And that's part of what makes the argument strong. But I do think that there are counterexamples in the way that people are portrayed in those shows too, that, um, that, that didn't quite come into the focus of the piece. But Dana, you know, I think the attraction to us of this essay, other than its own virtues, 
such as they are, is is just the idea that New York is an imagined city, right? The great cities in the middle of their various renaissances always, always are. There are always certain key figures who invoke and imagine, like Dickens' London, Samuel Johnson's London, Woody Allen's New York, uh, on and on and on and on. What 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 are some of those touchstones for you? I mean, I guess the, the bigger question that reading this raised for me is something that I remember thinking just watching TV over the last, I mean, more more 10 years ago or so than now, but I think it may still be true now. It's just, why are we setting so many of our fictional stories and worlds in New York? I, I mean, and I say this as a New Yorker who came here because I love this city, who can't imagine leaving the city because I love it so much. I'm interested in its history. I'm interested in its geography. I mean, everything about New York is fascinating to me, but I, I'm also very aware that it occupies an outsized place in our entertainment ecosystem and that every single show seems to be set on either on one of the two coasts, right? In New York or Los Angeles. Either it's a show about some sort of, uh, you know, New York cultural media finance world, or it's about the fringes of the entertainment industry in Hollywood, about which there are millions of shows. And I'm sure producers are sick of getting pitched shows like that. And a part of me feels this nostalgia for the TV world that I grew up in where, you know, the Mary Tyler Moore show took place in Minneapolis and the Bob Newhart show took place in Chicago. And those were obviously probably all filmed on sound stages in Los Angeles with a couple exterior shots to establish what city you're in. But just the idea that every place in the country is somewhere that stories could be unfolding that are worth telling seems like it's disappearing a little bit from the entertainment landscape. And that if something is set in other parts of the country, it'll have to be all regional and gritty, you know, and like showing how uh, authentic and gritty it is to live in the Midwest or the South or something, as opposed to they're just being places in the country that are interesting to explore and learn about whether or not they have some particular uh, class marker associated with them or, you know, an authenticity marker. Does that make any sense? I mean, even as a New Yorker, I just get sick sometimes of let's watch a new sitcom. Oh, establishing shot of Manhattan skyline, you know? Right. Yeah. Especially when it, there are different levels of specificity and versions of New York that are that are portrayed. I mean, one thing that's striking to me here in LA and in my own lived experience of New York is that it feels to me that for the last decade, LA has actually been the cultural capital and the place that uh, that young, talented people move to because for the last decade, New York has become so much more expensive and so much less hospitable to them. And just by virtue of having more space, your money has gone further here if you are a, a, a creative person who hasn't quite figured out what your thing is yet. You know, I'm always trying to be conscious of the fact that I also got just older during my second decade in New York. So maybe I met fewer of the people who are coming to town, but it felt like many, many, many of my creatively inclined friends moved here over the course of the last decade. And, you know, in Los Angeles, there's ton that we have this problem too. There's tons of representations of Los Angeles. There's tons of representations of being in or on the fringes of the entertainment business, but there are some new shows that are representing different aspects of the city. There's uh, Vita, which is set in East LA, um, created by Tanya Sriracha, which is an interesting show that might be worth discussing at some point. And then there's this show debuting soon on Netflix called Hentified, which is about young, upwardly mobile Latinos moving back to Boyle Heights. So there are broader versions of this city, at least, coming to the screen, largely made by creators of color. All right. Well, the piece is by Willie Staley of the Times Magazine. It's called The Television Fantasy of New York. Uh, maybe sort of split on it, but I think it was great. Uh, check it out. All right, moving on. 
All right, now is the moment in our podcast uh, we endorse. Dana, what do you have? You know, for my endorsement, I think I'm going to shout back to the Oscars again, because something that we really didn't get into, although we talked about Parasites wins and we talked about various speeches, we didn't talk about Bong Joon-ho's speeches. And to me, the the greatest takeaway and the thing that I wanted to rewatch, that I went back and rewatched several times yesterday just to get that happy feeling again, were Bong Joon-ho's three acceptance speeches, four if you count that he was up on stage when Best Picture was won, although the producer, as is traditional, gave the speech there. Um, They were just masterful examples of acceptance speeches, even though they were given in a foreign language with a real-time interpreter next to him. He was so relaxed. He seemed so grateful for his award. He seemed not overprepared, but, you know, very uh, sincere and sort of organized in his statements, and particularly the Best Director Award, which was one of the big surprises that he got, and uh, the tribute that he did to Martin Scorsese during it. It was just beautiful. Um, So you can obviously watch all those on YouTube. But as a bit of self-promotion, I will note that I wrote a piece for Slate that was just about Bong Joon-ho's acceptance speeches. So they're all bundled together, the full video there. So if you want to have an easy place to go and watch um, some really wonderful, happy moments of uh, a very good filmmaker accepting his very deserved awards, you can go on Slate.com and look for my piece on Bong Joon-ho's acceptance speeches. The title, if you want to search by that, is Bong Joon-ho's Oscar Night Had All the Genre Benefits ending twists of his movies. There's a lot of other great Oscar coverage up on Slate as well, but if in particular you want to zero in on some bong joy, that's the place to go. Excellent. Um, Julia, what do you have? Perhaps you guys have a sense of what you're worried about in the world. Perhaps you're concerned and trying to suss out how to think about coronavirus. Perhaps you have anxieties about the forthcoming election. Uh, you know, perhaps you if, you, if you live upstate like Steve, you're worried about ticks. Are you worried about the coming Western Hemisphere takeover of Pablo Escobar's cocaine hippos? If not, (laughs) perhaps you should be. I would commend you to read Chasing Columbia's Cocaine Hippos by Peter Rowe in the LA Times, uh, studying the wild population of hippos descended from four who were on Escobar's $63 million Colombian ranch when he was busted most of his menagerie was taken away to various zoos, but essentially hippos are such pains in the ass that nobody took them for some reason. And now they are propagating in the rivers of Colombia, you know, eating a lot of grass, pooping in the river, and generally reestablishing the presence of megafauna uh, in the Western Hemisphere in a surprising fashion. And hippos are no joke. So I would (laughs) encourage you to go learn about Colombia's cocaine hippos, I think the cocaine is just in their history, but um, nevertheless, very interesting story about the ecology of Columbia. All right. Well, I want to this week endorse two very different sort of obituaries for the great literary critic, translator, essayist, philosopher, novelist, George Steiner, who died on February 3rd. The first was a, a you know, predictably beautiful appreciation by Adam Gopnik in The New Yorker, and Adam quite rightly points to Steiner as the almost the last of a certain type, like the man who just embodies complet. You know, almost all the European literature seem to flow through his person all at once. They're all at his fingertips and um, uh, there for him to recite or refer to, you know, across all the Romance languages. Just a remarkable, and, you know, for many years, quite a accessible writer for The New Yorker, too. I mean, you know, just a, sort of this towering figure of a kind that I think was probably only possible thanks to emigrate all the displacements of the 20th century, especially the mid, early to mid 20th century, where someone really would become, you know, 
sort of deeply fluent in the liter you know literatures of um of especially of europe it's highly eurocentric uh, version but anyway and um but then there was a second piece in n plus one that i highly commend to people and i'll just read the first uh, bits of the first paragraph george steiner is a charming but monstrous narcissist in november 2001 i spent an amazing evening with him and the capital c celebrated capital b poet at the professor of poetry's house Things got started when another professor, the poet, and an artist, the poet's spouse, complained laughingly about the Xerox machine in the university English department. What follows is, I believe, a pseudonymously uh, written, but um, probably accurate account of a remarkably decadent insidery dinner in 2001. Um, this is definitely telling tales out of school, but it really shows how pompous and insular the literary world can be, um, especially as it intersects with academia. And it's not so it's not so unloving as to libel the dead. Um, it didn't strike me as blasphemous. But it, where Adam's piece gave you the sense of how right and beautiful it is for a single person to purport to carry with him the entirety of the canon within his own person, this piece gives you the um, it gives you the the flip side of it. It's just how how monstrous it is to believe you embody literature and thought itself. Um, and it, I think the two operate as useful correctives to one another and together form, a, I think, a 2020 vision into into what this person's legacy was. But if, if nothing else, read the N plus one one because it is hilariously funny. Oh my God, it is. <laughs> it's really an incredible fly on the wall experience. I've tried Googling the author of this wonderful piece, Kinton Ford, and uh, it does seem to be a a nom de plume, but maybe it's not. If you're actually Kenton Ford, please email me. I want to thank you for that wonderful piece of writing. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Please do. We love it. And if we haven't gotten back to you, just nudge us. We, we love this correspondence. It's very, very fun. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Jessamyn Molly. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen for Dame Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you soon. So stacked that he knows when he goes back to this mobile home, that's when it's back to the lab again, yo. This old rap city better go capture this moment and hope it's so you better lose yourself in the music. The moment you want, you better.